One is data sets that have millions of instances, and that enables a completely different class of machine learning algorithms. The second characteristic that's made this revolution possible is a language that allows people to really come up with very sophisticated models that capture some underlying structure in the domain. And then the third, of course, is the advent of cloud computing, which gives you enough compute power and memory that you could actually train these really complex models. It's the combination of all of these three that I think has really enabled the AI revolution. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. MacArthur Genius, computer science prodigy and entrepreneur, Daphne Kohler has advanced science and challenged expectations her whole life. Her latest challenge, taking on lifespan itself. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So David, I know our guest today hails from Israel. Have you ever been over there? You know, when I was growing up, I think shortly after my bar mitzvah, in fact, um, our whole family spent two weeks there, up and down, um, one, of, one of the most incredible places on the planet. Is yeah. A, 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 have you ever been there? I have not ever been there. I haven't. My uh, grandfather was a rabbi, and he used to go all the time, and I never managed to go along. Well, now you, now you have, I mean, remember going from, from down to uh, En Gedi, to the cities, to everywhere, just a, a really an a, just incredibly vibrant place with so much history and yet so modern. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Excellent. We are uh, delighted to welcome Daphne Kohler to uh, to the show today. Baruch haba'ah la podcast shalanu, Daphne. <laughs> Shalom, David. Shalom, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I want to start with a quick anecdote about Daphne. I seem to know a lot of folks who pride themselves on being really, really critical. You know, this person's not as smart as everyone thinks. This person's overrated. You know, you've met them. But I've been struck by how even the most intensely critical people I know, and I do seem to know a lot of those sorts of people, <laughs> when talking about Daphne Keller, they momentarily put their usual curmudgeonliness on pause and say, oh, she's absolutely amazing or incredible or brilliant or the real deal. So as you can appreciate, we're grateful you're here today and also suitably humbled. Thank you. Now I'm embarrassed, but thank you. Okay. You are a Sabra, born in and grew up in Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Your dad is a botanist, and you describe your parents as supportive of you, but not driving you. It sounds like from a young age, it was pretty clear you were smarter than the average bear. Uh, I guess, I, how could I, how could I uh, say anything in response to this? <laughs> how do you feel about bears? <laughs> Um, and when did you clone your first? Um, but no, so you, I mean, you were reading, I mean, you were reading at a young age, you were doing math. Was, what was it like growing up in your house? Yeah, so I've always been kind of academically inclined and I guess very much a self-learner. So as you said, I kind of taught myself to read at the age of four and then started to read chapter books and my friends in kindergarten. And um, my father used to bring me his gift when he would travel abroad, math workbooks. This was pre-internet, so you had to do everything in workbooks and I used to enjoy working my way through those and reading science books, and I've always loved learning. Well, so you were in Palo Alto, I understand, when you were 12 and, you know, checking out uh, a different type of education than you were affording. Yeah, my father was on sabbatical at Stanford, and I was supposed to go to Jordan Junior High at uh, Palo Alto, but they realized that mathematically I was more advanced than what they could offer at the junior high school. So initially they said, well, why don't you bike over to the 
high school and do math over there and then come back and take the rest of your classes at the junior high. And I said, nah, forget it. Just stay at the high school the whole day. And so I was kind of inadvertently accelerated the grade um, when I was here in, in Palo Alto. And then when I came back to Israel, actually, it was a pivotal moment in my history because the high school I was supposed to return to said, well, we're not particularly interested that you were accelerated and did well in the U.S. That's the U.S. For a different high school, you're going to go back to your original grade. And my parents said, no way. And that actually caused us to move to a different uh, town and a different school where I happened to be adjacent to uh, Israel's top university, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, literally adjacent, which is what allowed a 13-year-old to actually start attending college at that point because I could just literally cross the street and take classes there. So what was that like for you socially? I mean, that is a big age gap at that age, you know, 13 to 18, which most of the other students probably were. How did that feel socially for you? Actually, the age gap was much larger because in Israel, people do the university after they finish the military. So most of my fellow students were actually in their early to mid-20s, and I was the 13-year-old. So it was a little bit like I was the mascot for the class. I was kind of like the pet, and that was... That was fine. I had a I actually had a good time with that. Um, and but I remember distinctly when I was uh, sixteen and seventeen, and I started to be a teaching assistant at that point because I was already doing my last year of undergrad and starting my master's. And so I was there as a seventeen-year-old teaching a bunch of twenty-five-year-olds uh, in class, and that was kind of a bit of a weird experience. But it was good, <laughs> and I had I had a wonderful time with that. That's great. So you graduated high school at 16 and college at 17, and you majored in CS. And then after several years of mandatory service in the Israel Army, the IDF, where appropriately, it sounds like, you worked in intelligence, uh, you went on to do your PhD at Stanford, uh, also in CS, with an emphasis on on theory. Uh, And then I guess after a short postdoc at Berkeley, you returned to Stanford as a professor. Oh, man, you left Berkeley to go to Stanford? That's disappointing. Lisa's a big uh, Berkeley person. People ask me, well, what are you going to do with the big game? And I said, well, I'm going to ignore it, just like I've been ignoring it so far. (laughs) I am sitting here in my cow sweatshirt right now as we speak. (laughs) Go Bears. Sorry. I love both schools. All right. So you you began to teach um, at Stanford um, as a professor what is an absolutely legendary course there, a course that's become a real rite of passage, at least for those who are able to get through it. Can you tell us about this, uh, this legendary course of yours? This was an interesting course because I actually viewed it with a dual purpose. One was to teach the material, which I thought was really valuable to people. It was sort of a a brand of machine learning that allowed you to conceptualize and and reason about really large, complex systems. Uh, But the other purpose I thought of the course was really teaching people how to think rigorously and mathematically. And that's not a skill that a lot of courses try and teach. And I created a curriculum as well as a set of assignments that basically taught people almost how to be researchers in the field. And that was a fairly significant challenge because most undergrads are never taught that. Um, And, you know, in retrospect, I'm not sure if I necessarily made that choice in an ideal way because I think the material is really useful to people who don't necessarily want to be researchers but just want to be users of the material and apply it in their work. And so a few years later, I actually split the course into two, one which was 
here's this really cool technology that uh, you could use in your work, and here's how to use it. And then the second one was, okay, now you really want to advance the state of the art, and let's learn how to use those more complex techniques, but also add to them. And I think that was a better decision at that point. Um, so I apologize to the people in the first few rounds. What kind of people went to the one class versus the other? Like, what was the characteristic that drew people to the the research class versus the, the, the how you do practical stuff class? So they were structured as a sequence. And at that point, given the even at, uh, even then growing popularity of machine learning, I had about 120, 150 people in the introductory course. And then about 30 would continue to the second one. And those 30 were typically ones who were bound to a PhD program or uh, or the more sort of rigorously inclined among the master's students and the undergrads. What fraction of those folks are at Google now? Or have been, <laughs> or at least were at Google at some point after they uh, completed the program? Boy, I don't have a count, but I can certainly tell you that when I walk the hallways of Google... Oh, come on. You're a math genius. you got to be able to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of students at, uh, at Google, but also at the other big tech companies, but Google specifically. Right. Um, all right. So um, so before we go on, I wanted to mention that because of the limited time we have, there are topics that deserve to be covered and won't be. So uh, Daphne's receipt of a MacArthur Genius Award in 2004 for one and her co-founding of the online company Coursera for another. Instead, we're going to we're going to turn to leverage Daphne's genius and her teaching uh -huh. skills. Do you see what Very I did fun. there, Lisa? Um, to help us better understand AI in general and AI in healthcare in particular, and perhaps how Calico is seeking to use AI in pursuit of longevity therapeutics. Um, so one of the things that you told me, which I thought of the many, many things, which was so interesting, was it's not so much that when I was, we were talking recently about your interest in AI, and you said, well, it's not so much that you pursued AI, but that AI found you. Could you help explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so when I moved into AI, or rather it wasn't AI at the time, I was really uh, moving into for my more theoretical background into something that really involved probabilistic reasoning. And this was around the time that probability was viewed as anathema by a lot of AI researchers who had grew up in the world of logic. And there was a fair bit of controversy. It seems almost hard to encompass this today when machine learning is sort of the substrate of AI. But there were panels that, if you go back and look, where people vehemently argued against probability as being um, any kind of reasonable component of AI research. And so I was really doing probabilistic reasoning when AI gradually discovered that the world is kind of complex and there's a lot of uncertainty and you can't express it using logical rules. Huh. That's so interesting. Because so, so then, I, I mean, and you hear this sort of for initially for when it, for even for AI in healthcare, right? That there were, um, you know, it, that they were trying to sort of right. They were trying to define everything as you know. It was very much rule based, wasn't that right? Sort of the initial. Um, uh, you know, some of the initial, even, you know, the initial software was, and then eventually th there were some concerns where people were saying like, oh my gosh, if this is true, like we're just, er in other words, can you ever generalize from it or are there just an infinite number of rules? Wasn't that one of the critiques or uh, even from some of the people who are advancing the rule-based approach that they, they sort of almost had this existential crisis, it sounds like, where they're like, oh my gosh, is it really just an infinite number of rules that we'll never really be able to master? 
Yeah, and, and they basically tried to write down these rules, and then they realized that the rules were wrong in some cases, and you had to write the exceptions to the rules and the exceptions to the exceptions, and you had to combine the rules and figure out which of them dominated when. Um, and and for whatever reason, there was such resistance to using probability theory. So they would add numbers to the rules and then come up with these bizarre ways of combining the numbers that was anything but probability theory. And And I have no idea why that was, um, but fortunately we've moved away from that and the substrate of probability theory and statistics is really what's enabling the um, all of the machine learning that we see today. So what year was it that you started talking about this topic, the machine learning and AI? We started thinking about it deeply. Well, I started working in machine learning and AI, I would say in the mid-1990s or 94 was when I moved to Berkeley and really started getting into this field and then became more and more of a machine learning person. I mean, that's when I became a probability person. And then I became more of a machine learning person around 96 or so um, and just kept on moving more and more in that direction when it became clearly apparent that any language that you had to put in that would uh, allow you to model the world, you just couldn't model it all by hand. That is, there was a limit to a person's ability to figure out what those numbers were that represented all of the myriad scenarios and, and how they could be combined. And so probability theory um, with probabilities that were learned from the data really was the foundation for scaling up uh, the kinds of AI systems that we wanted to build and making them relevant to real-world problems. So it's been 20 years since that time, and it seems to me anyway that all of a sudden this is the year of AI. Like all of a sudden, you know, 20-year overnight success, this topic has become the thing everybody wants to talk about. What took so long? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think what really happened, and I don't know if it's all entirely this uh, this last year, but I would say it's definitely over the past four or five years, and the revolution happened in that five-year period since I left Stanford to go to Coursera. And I think it's really the combination of three factors. Um, one is the development of really, really large data sets. When I left Stanford to go to Coursera, there were a lot of domains where a large data set was a few thousand instances, or maybe if you're really lucky, a few tens of thousands of instances. And uh, and now we have data sets that have millions of instances, and that enables a completely different class of machine learning algorithms to be employed. Um, for small data sets, the truth is that as soon as you have kind of like a reasonable machine learning algorithm, um, it doesn't matter much which of those you use because they all achieve somewhat comparable performance and it's all about which features you engineer into the model. But once you have really large data sets, it begins to make a very big difference which machine learning algorithm you put together that really exploits the unique aspects of the domain. And so the second characteristic that made, that's made this uh, revolution possible is uh, a language that allows people to really come up with very sophisticated models that capture some underlying structure in the domain. And people who are able to um, put that structure into the learning algorithm so that you really maximize performance. And then the third, of course, is the advent of cloud computing, which gives you enough compute power and memory that you could actually train these really complex models, which, again, you didn't need to worry about back at the time when there were uh, simple models and fewer instances. Hmm. So it's the combination of all of these three that I think has really enabled the AI revolution, and we've seen that in a range of tasks. Like, for instance, if you look at the performance and image recognition, image captioning, 
um, back in 2012, human performance greatly exceeded uh, the performance of even the best machine learning algorithm. And about three years ago, that flipped. Now machines are actually better at labeling images than people are, which is just astonishing. Can I go back half a step with you? Um, one of the, of, the, of the three points that you described, you, if, if I'm capturing what you said right, you sort of said that the key, uh, what, what has really enabled um, AI currently has been these sort of a large, and I assume you mean both large and annotated data sets and cloud computing. But the middle one I, a point that you made, I think is of particular interest, is you've described it as people, you're talking about domain expertise, and the way you've described it to me was people who are bilingual and understand both the domains of, M, of uh, machine learning, but also the domains of medicine or the domains of biology. Could you talk about the role of domain expertise in making use of ML? Because it seems to me one of the issues we, we've all seen, and I think you and I were even at a, at, a, at, a, at a dinner where, you know, some of the topics came up uh, probably both positively and negatively, folks who were incredibly knowledgeable in technology, not so much knowledgeable in sort of healthcare or biology, and, but sure that just the raw uh, technology knowledge would be able, would be sort of strong enough. Where is the, you know, maybe from my perspective, coming from from more of the healthcare biology side, where it, where do you see that domain knowledge as being essential in the evolution of this space? So when I look at the uh, performance of some of the best systems out there, and I'm, before we get to biology, I'm thinking of domains like the image recognition and natural language processing, like machine translation and um, and speech recognition, where machine learning has just made huge, huge advances. And I look at the models that have been the most successful in each of those domains. They share a common foundation, but they're quite different from each other um, in terms of the structure and how um, and and the kind of sort of insight, if you will, that the model teases out of the data. And I think in order to do that in biology, you really need to have, similarly, people who kind of think about um, what the domain is and then build into the learning algorithm the capability for the algorithm to tease out that uh, type of insight from the domain. Because that's so interesting, isn't it? Because part of on the one hand, the way sort of, I guess, in some of the, I mean, there, I don't think there is one popular understanding of ML. I don't but, think there's but, any popular okay, understanding. Okay. Well, no, no, but, no, but I mean, as, as it gets discussed, you know, we were at all these, you know, at these conferences where people trying to get their hands around it. You know, one of the whole you know, ideas seems to be that, okay, you have all this data and you don't have to have people's biasy. Like, how do you differentiate between, on the one hand, you don't want people's kind of ignorant or preconceived biases to, to, right. to, to screw, screw it up and to sort of prevent some underlying relationships because you didn't see in your, in your existing model that A could be related to B. It might be in the data, but your existing cognitive models don't allow you to see that. But what you're saying here, and w- which makes sense to me, but I'm wondering how, how, you ra- how, you, how you blend the two, is that having some understanding of the domain and how things might fit together is critical, and you, it's not just you know you let the computers figure out all the data and, and work it through and come up with something. That there has to be some type of structure imposed or some type of initial understanding or relationships imputed. And it, you know how, how do you square those two kind of perspectives of not wanting to have improper by you know cognitive bias around this about how things should be related, but at the same time wanting to leverage. Um, you know what you're calling domain expertise in in in, in biology or healthcare. How how do, how do you square those two? You know, it's a challenge, and it's a it's an engineering problem, and one has to often explore that spectrum. Um, you try and put in 
sort of amount of bias that doesn't really sort of skew the model too much in one direction. So, for instance, the models in um, in computer vision put in a notion of um, spatial coherence, if you will, and and spatial invariances, and and they, you kind of build that into the model without building in specific um, information about what particular objects look like. So it's high-level information as opposed to very specific information. But um, I've not seen yet, um, you know, this this ability to just throw a completely generic, uh, say, neural network in, 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 at a bunch of data and get the best performance at the get-go. And I think that that we're not there. And I think building in some intuition about what matters into the model is, at least at this point, still pretty important. And you often have to explore different points in the spectrum of how much do you put in, and then you try it. You keep aside what we call a validation set, which is something that you didn't train on to see which uh, model that you build actually achieves better performance. So one of the things I've been sort of fascinated about is the the inherent bias in the data itself. You know, And I know at Stanford they've done a lot of research about Gender bias, for instance, in the in the in the biology and uh, healthcare data, since so much of the the original data of clinical trials and whatever has come from you know studies on white males, uh, you know, of a certain age rather than anybody else. How do we fix the gender bias in AI? Well, I think that's a that's a real problem. I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, um, machine learning picks up on the biases that exist in the data. And if the data is biased, then the machine learning algorithm is going to pick up on it. And I think it's actually a fine line about when that's okay and when that's not okay. So, for instance, is it okay or not okay to recognize that women buy generally different things from men? And so your autocomplete, if you're a woman, might be better if it was using the information or even your shopping history, if you will, to put, point you towards the objects that were more likely to be the correct auto-completion or spelling correction of your query. Is that okay or not okay? I mean, it's making the experience better. Um, so I think there's things that we would all look at and say, boy, this is clearly not okay. There's things that I think we would all look at and say, mm, you know, that probably makes sense. And then there's that really broad gray zone in the middle that I think is really hard to decide when it's okay or not. So um, uh, related to, 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 to sort of this topic, but still a little bit different, is um, the, the idea of um, how you, uh, w- when you're collecting data, which is sort of one of the topics here, how you balance, and this is particularly true in healthcare, Quality versus versus quantity. Um, you know, we've talked about this with you know with a tool with folks like a tool Butte, um, who you know even uh, actually Lisa was asking him even about some of the you know, questions about bias and in his view as well. The more data, the more diversity you have, for example. But I think more generally, one of the comments that, that you've made, which I I, I think is um, I'd love for you to amplify on because it's so important, is that quantity becomes quality. Can you um, amplify what you mean on about, about that? I think we need to be watchful on this because obviously there is a, an element of garbage in, garbage out, and data that is incredibly noisy um, can often just uh, be completely useless. But if you collect enough data with sufficient diversity of sources, then you get a sort of balancing out or washing out of systematic noise uh, one hopes. Um, and so I think making sure that 
one is reaching conclusions based not just on a single data set that might have systematic noise and biases, but uh, but really thinking more broadly about a collection of data sets is, is really fundamental. And we've seen that, for instance, in some of the genetic studies that perform a meta-analysis across multiple data sets where you not only get the significant increase in power by having large numbers, but you also are able to um, to get some kind of correction of the biases that I think are inevitable when you're collecting a population, for instance, of, uh, of subjects in one country where there is a particular population. So I think that's something that we ought to strive for, and I think it requires a culture change in, um, in a field where data sharing is really not a norm, and people hoard data and, and keep it siloed, um, and oftentimes the collection standards are quite different, so most of the work that you have to put in to actually extract insights from a collection of data sets is just what we call data wrangling, which is figuring out how this protocol aligns with that protocol and this naming convention with that naming convention. And, um, and it's just ridiculous how much work goes in to cleaning the data that could much better be spent on extracting information from it. So I think better standards in the community on data sharing and data standards and nomenclature would just ease scientific discovery by orders of magnitude. I like that image of a data wrangler. I picture like a scientist with thick, dark glasses and a rope, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I you know, see hundreds of business plans a year in my venture role focused on AI and machine learning for healthcare. But my sense from talking to customers, uh, at least, you know, when they're not in public, is that they're not ready for this stuff. I mean, the health systems are not ready for this stuff. The doctors are not, you know not only not ready, but not willing in many cases to have a point of care decision support that fundamentally there's a lot, the science is and the data science is far ahead of the practical usage. Do you, what do you think? Uh, I think that unfortunately you're probably right. Um, it's a very significant cultural change. I think that there are certain parts of the, of the field where we are closer than others simply because we're going to get soon to the point where the delta in quality between the decisions that a human can make and the decisions a computer can make will be so stark that it would be impossible for someone in good conscience to ignore um, the, the machine learning approach. Where will we hit that point first? Where are... Um, uh, where do you see the first area where we'll sort of break through some of these sociological barriers, as you've put it, um, and see the um, w where it's just so... Um, compelling. Thank you. Compelling. <laughs> Thank you. need AI to come up with that word. Um, <laughs> or maybe autocomplete. actual intelligence to come up with that word. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think the first place will be an image analysis in computer vision where the amount of, of data is, is huge. The ability of people to look at those images and even more so if they're movies, you know, um, are, are is just very, very limited. And there's just so much information there that's going to completely transform the, the care that we provide. Um, I think over time, as we go beyond that and more data is acquired on the omic side on a per patient basis with sufficient numbers, um, you're going to also be able to look at things like whatever transcriptional profiles and genetic data and look for things that go beyond one or two or three biomarkers, which is where we are today, which is just 
horrifying when you think about how much information there is in genetic and genomic data that's just getting thrown out when you look at the single biomarker approaches. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a subsequent frontier. But I would say image analysis and some of the results that we've seen, including from Google, for instance, on, on retinal images and, and images of you know skin cancers and such and radiography images, are just going to completely um, transform that field. So the, the question I often get asked, uh, is you know should should radiologists be looking for new jobs? You know is that is this going to eliminate that field of medicine because the computer will do it? I think it'll be definitely transformed, and what uh, how much work will be left for humans? I think there will be some. It's not that. Uh, there's still going to be some things that people have never seen before and have not been, and the machine has not been trained on, where the intuition of a of a medical expert will be useful. But I would say that a lot of the run of the mill analysis uh, will be done by computers. I actually wrote in 2010-2011 with a graduate student of mine who was a pathologist, Andy Beck, uh, the I think one of the very very first digital pathology papers, and the other senior co-author with me on the paper, Matt Vanderine, who's a professor at Stanford, basically told me, boy, I'm glad I'm retiring soon because pretty soon computers are going to have my job. And Andy's the CEO of, of like some Path AI company or something now, isn't he? That's right. Andy has decided that the time has come to really bring this technology into the world and decided to leave Harvard and form a company. He saw the enemy and became it, huh? <laughs> so I know, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I do want to want to ask you sort of one other topic. Um, you've described, so you're, you're at this super stealth um, uh, it feels like a super, super. It was funny to hear you talk about sort of data sharing and everything, because when I think about a company like Calico, it seems very um, uh, private. Um, uh, where that you know they're trying to, in a non-hype driven way, figure out um, you know really do incredible basic science uh, about longevity and lifespan, led by scientists like David Botstein. I know um, the head of uh, I think the head of research there, um, Hal Barron, just left to become head of research at. Um, uh, at GSK, um, but you've described the appeal of Calico for you as as you'd like to see it as the place where high end ML happens. And just like you know, in in a, I guess an abbreviated a way as you could, could you sort of describe your your vision for Calico and how they're trying, how you as the chief computing officer are trying to use your understanding to um, uh, drive immortality <laughs> in a few minutes? <laughs> because unfortunately, since we're not there yet, we don't have all day. But go ahead. <laughs> First of all, let me just say, I don't think we're aiming at immortality, nice as that thought might be. Uh, we're oh, aiming <laughs> at extending health span and allowing people to live longer, healthier lives. I don't think any of us wants a, a, to create a bunch of decrepit 150-year-olds, but rather have people be vibrant, healthy for longer. Um I think that longevity is a wonderful problem for machine learning because, first of all, it's a fundamental systems biology problem. It involves pretty much, I'm sure, every system in the body, and because it's a, you you need to think about the organism throughout its life and across multiple multiple dimensions and phenotypes. It really is a very complex data integration problem that occurs at, across different data modalities, different uh, biological scales, different time scales, um, and and there is more and more data that we can collect and are collecting that attempt to get different windows on that, but really putting them together is, I think, beyond what a person can do 
uh, on their own. Um, and so how do you build models that really allow you to capture um, at least part of that complexity and extract some insights that might be the beginning of a therapeutic intervention that will allow us to uh, live healthy for longer. And what is limiting in, in your in your case? Is it, I mean, one of the things I recall you doing at Calico, or, or the Calico folks, I would say in general, which really struck me, was really trying to return to the foundations of biology and not just, I mean, it reminds me of what, when I was in um, uh, Doug Melton's lab sort of doing doing stem cell work. One of his, when he, when he switched from Xenopus to, to um to stem cells, his real, the very first thing he tried to do is to say, okay, well, where is the really rigorous foundation here? What do we really understand? And then let's use that as a basis to go forward. And I sort of always saw Calico as really trying to do that in an incredibly scientifically rigorous way, like you'd expect from Botstein, for example, um, to try to say, okay, what do we really understand? What are the most rigorous data? And then also working on creating data sets. Is it the limitations of just the available data that's, that's sort of the stuck point? Is it putting it together? Is it just that take a long time because you're dealing with longevity. What, what, is, what is sort of the, the most critical stuck point that you're focused on? Boy, it's all of the above. I mean, I think that given the complexity of the problem, the data sets that are currently available, especially when you look at longitudinal data sets, are very limited. And coming back to my earlier point, many of them are not made available to the general public or to researchers without a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, if at all. And so I think creating data sets um, is critical. Data sets that last through um, the lifespan are, are hard to get because especially if you're interested in human and not just in model organisms, you have to wait a really long time. Um, and then as we talked about, the analytical techniques are, um, are not fully developed in biology and become even more complex when you think about integration of multiple modalities. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done on all of these frontiers. Fascinating. Thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. So interesting. Uh, just, you know, as, as important and challenging as these problems are, it's inspiring that um, it's attracted, attracted to talents, uh, that people like you exist and that this field has attracted people like you uh, to work on these important problems. So um, we're really grateful that you've taken the time to speak with us today. Um, and now I hope that you go back and continue to work on getting them solved <laughs> quickly. <laughs> yeah, because, hey, I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> yeah, none of us are, unfortunately. So um, thank you very much, David and Lisa. I really enjoyed the conversation. These were some great questions, and this was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Well, that was interesting. So interesting. I mean, I think, you know, this topic is one that, you know, most of us in this field are talking about constantly, 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 but frankly, not really understanding as well as, you know, we really should. Well, that's why it was so interesting speaking with her. And, you know, and, and in some of my other conversations with her, one of the things that she would sort of talk about is she was she was as concerned as anyone I've met about the hype in the field, you know, because AI right. goes through these AI winters. Yeah. And she's really pointed out that the winters in many cases are caused by, in her view, the excessive hype. Yeah. And so the idea of being able to say, oh, we're not at general AI yet. There's so much that we don't know. And there's still so much promise. It's being able to keep both of those thoughts. But I guess you have to be as smart as she is to really be able to keep them both in your heads. The, um, to non to make sure that you don't have extravagant expectations, but at the same time you, you still really have I guess you might say extravagant ambitions and really understand how to how to, how to do yeah, it. Yeah, one of the things that really you know makes me wonder, think, or worry, depending on how you know how far I am into the mood. Degree of bourbon um, is the you know if we use AI to replace a lot of people in science, right, and in medicine, 
but there's so much yet more to learn, right? From the beginning. And the data has to come from somewhere. So the data has to come from the learnings that we start with. So, you know, if you if you decline, you create, you know, reductions in the field, how do we create new learning to feed into the AI over time? Or does it just get snoopeder eventually? Right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think that the idea is not that, oh, you have a finite amount of knowledge, but that in, you know, in theory, you, you, you maybe even look in more creative places for it. But yeah, it's but so- the fields like radiology decline to, to a pittance, right? Will there be enough uh, development in those fields to keep the knowledge going, to keep the systems learning? To be determined. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Probably by a computer. <laughs> <laughs> so please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment and help others discover the show. And join us next time when our guest will be Amir Dan Rubin of One Medical. I belong to One Medical, so I'm very excited to hear what he's uh, he's going to uh, do for us. That's, uh, yeah, I'm, I am too. You can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Shalom Aleichem. Aleichem Shalom.